You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bible this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to read almost the entire chapter this morning. We'll skip a couple of verses toward the end. But, but don't get lost in what we're reading. I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. It's an interesting chapter, chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. And uh, may we receive from it this morning exactly what the Lord had for us. 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning at verse number 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman, And said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, and put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that hath a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king, and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa came and spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, and did obeisance, and said, Help, O king! And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, my husband is dead. And thy handmaid hath two sons, and the two strove together in the field, and there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thy handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will deliver the heir also, and so they shall quench my coal, which is left, shall not leave to my husband, neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said to the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me, and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught, Unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Of thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak. One word unto my lord, the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now therefore, that I am come to speak of this thing unto my lord the king, is because the people have made me afraid, and thy handmaid said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid, for the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son altogether out of the inheritance of God. Then thy handmaid said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comfortable. 
For as an angel of God, so is my Lord the King, to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, Is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, As I so liveth, my lord the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Joab, he hath bade me, and he put all these words in my mouth of thine handmaid. To fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. And the king said unto Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, and that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Jump down to verse number 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he had barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said, Wherefore have thy servant set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gezer? It hath been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king. And told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king. He bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. And may we this morning see the folly of this chapter. Have you ever done anything that as you started, you thought it was a great, great idea? You thought, this is a no-brainer, this is brilliant, this is, I'm I'm genius in this. And whether it's something as small as a haircut, or color, or an outfit, or an investment, or a relationship, when you start it, you perceive that this was exactly the right thing to do. It was wise, but by the end of it, you realized it was a nightmare. It was the furthest thing from the truth. Some of you are shaking your heads and you're looking at people, and I I understand this morning. And history is replete with such examples of moments that that the individual thought, "This this is it, this is the breakthrough, this is what we must do, only to find out that the entire endeavor was that of folly. 
I love history. I, I like to read history. I like to study history. I love the stories of history. And this might be U.S. history for some of you, but I'm sure you're aware of the Civil War. You've heard of that, haven't you? Yes? Right? 1860, 63. And I'm sure you've heard of the Battle of Gettysburg, right? That's not foreign to you. One of the great battles of the Civil War. The Union of the North had set the troops uh, in Gettysburg on, on Cemetery Hill against the Confederate armies of the South. And about the, after the second day of battle, which was a three-day battle, the Confederate general, General Lee, determined that the best way to break the Union's line was to attack right in the center. And he, he believed that if he attacked in the center, he could weaken the line, split the forces, and drive his way to the heart of the North. Brilliant idea. Unfortunately for Lee, General Meade of the Union that very night guessed that that's exactly what Lee would do. And so he brought reinforcements, he brought more troops, brought more artillery, and on the third day of July, 1863, the Confederates were ready to attack the Union line. They got off to a slow start. They had some complications, but they started with a, a barrage of artillery just to soften the encampment. And so the Union returned artillery. And what the Union did was, one by one, they silenced their cannons to make the South believe that either they were hit or running out of ammunition, which was not the case. And at 2 o'clock, nine brigades under Pickett, uh, Timbrell, and Pettigrew, 12,500 men began the charge in what they believed to be the weakest point of the Union's line. And they were mistaken. That day, the South suffered in that charge over 50% casualties. And they never recovered from that battle. It was the turning point of the U.S. Civil War. And I'm sure this morning we could take plenty of time to talk history. Uh, if you're familiar with the 20th century and, and Hitler's great idea to attack the Russians. He despised the Slavic people, especially the Russians, and he believed that if he would attack the Russians with three million Germans, which he called the March of All Times, he would double the size of his Third Reich. And at first it was a breeze. He moved his way through. But if you know the story, come October the rains came. Mud up to the German soldiers' knees their, their mechanized infantry was useless, and then winter set in. Just about like right now. Don't look outside. I shouldn't have said that. You're looking outside the whole time now. But it was a cold Russian winter, 40 below zero. And the Russians, who Hitler thought only had 200 divisions, had 400. And they brought in 20 Siberian units who were accustomed to cold weather. And by the end of December, the great German army was on the run, and 750,000 were either killed, wounded, or missing. And it was sort of the end of the beginning, beginning of the end for Hitler. We look at chapter 14, and, and it might be strange to you, the whole chapter. I mean, you have Joab, you have this woman, you have David, you have Absalom. And it seems, as you listen to what's happening, and you see what's going on, that there is 
wisdom everywhere. They have a plan. They have a scheme. It's accomplished. But if you know the story, although it seems as if there's wisdom everywhere, there is wisdom nowhere. Nowhere. The whole story, although people get their way, although they plan and scheme and manipulate, everything that happens here will turn out to be a disaster. Here is Joab. He conceives and orchestrates a scheme to achieve his end. He wants to bring Absalom back, and he does. And it will be his undoing. And then you have this woman of Tekoa. She's a pawn in the game here, and she comes before David, and she tells this story and interweaves then his story and then closes with her own story again to sort of cover this thing up. And what she wants to say to David is, David, you're not as compassionate as God is. God brings his banished home. And David says, okay, I'll do that. He's caught up in this trap. He understands what's happening. But this woman's example is not parallel. She's talking about two brothers who get in a fight and one kills the other. You mothers and fathers of boys, you know how this goes. They're striving together. They're by themselves. We would call that manslaughter. But Absalom's deal was not manslaughter. It was cold, calculated murder, two years in the making. She's appealing for mercy when it calls for justice. The plan is accomplished. She's never heard of again. And then there's David, a man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David has already ignored the problem of Absalom for three years prior to this, chapter 13. And he's wise enough to understand what's being done to him. He perceives this was Joab's doing, but he brings Absalom back. And for two more years, he says, I don't want to see your face. And it will be the undoing of David and his kingdom of peace and prosperity. And then there's Absalom. Absalom is the pragmatic of all of this. You're not talking to me. You're ignoring me. I'll get your attention. I'll burn your field down. And certainly, he does get Joab's attention. And Joab comes, and what Absalom does is he connives his way and he schemes his way into a position where he will eventually make a claim on the kingdom and seek his father's own life. And chapter 14 of 2 Samuel haunts the saved and the lost alike in that we can, it can be possible to have a sign of wisdom. My plans my schemes, my accomplishments, and yet be completely devoid of true wisdom. And my hope this morning is this, that we will not be foolish, but we will be men and women of true wisdom. Wisdom. Now we understand this morning there are people that are flat out foolish. They're foolish. Let me draw your attention to Psalm chapter not some, but Proverbs chapter 5 this morning. Just a couple verses. This is the instruction of a father to his son, and he's talking about wisdom, and he says in verse number 1, My son, attend unto wisdom, and bow thy ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and, and thy lips may keep knowledge. Jump down to verse number 10, 11. And he gives instruction, the kid ignores the instruction. In verse 11, here's what the kid says. 
And thou shalt mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. And here's a prime example of sheer foolishness. You know the type. The guy, the girl, the kid, the lughead. You know, I shouldn't say this, but I will say it. Um, Wooden... Shoes, wooden head, wouldn't listen. Have you heard that before? Yeah, all right. I didn't say that. A Dutchman said that to me one time, all right? The idea is this guy, this girl, they do not listen. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter your counsel, your experience, your age, your wisdom, your instruction. They will not hear. And they are foolish. And in Proverbs 5, we find the son who doesn't hear, doesn't listen, does his own thing, and his life at the end is destroyed. And our prayer this morning is this, for our young people and our old people, that we will not be foolish, but live a life of true wisdom. When our oldest son, AJ, was four years old, we were living in Michigan, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and, and uh, it was lunchtime. And Kim had opened the refrigerator, and at the bottom door of the refrigerator, there was a bottle in there, and the bottle had a picture of an apple on it. And so AJ saw it and said, I want juice, I want juice, I want juice. And we said, no, AJ, that's not for you. And so Kim shut the door, AJ walked over and opened the door again, and pointed to the bottle, actually grabbed the bottle and said, I want juice, I want juice, I want juice. And we said no and put the bottle down, closed the door. Then he threw a temper tantrum. Can you believe that? And he was screaming and crying because he couldn't have the juice. And I said to Kim, okay, Kim, listen, get his sippy cup and pour him a glass of juice. What A.G. did not realize is that picture of the apple was apple cider vinegar. Tasty, isn't it? And we filled this cup. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. And he drank. And he took a big gulp. And can I tell you something? It wasn't what he expected. And he cried and he wept and he never wanted apple juice again. (laughs) Again. Right? Foolishness. And, And we say that about children so often. But how many times have in our own hearts and minds We thought what we were doing, what we believed, our actions and our behavior were were actions of wisdom when in reality it was sheer foolishness. And my fear for our people is that for many of us, we will not hear, we will not listen, and our life will be pictured and painted as one drink of vinegar after the other. I don't know about you. But I don't want to live like those in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. I don't want to live like the young man in Proverbs chapter 5. I don't want to spend my life being told this is bad, believing it's good, and sucking down vinegar my whole life. Do you? We want wisdom. We want true wisdom. And although it wasn't happening in chapter 14, I think we understand, I hope you understand, what truism is. If I were to ask you this morning... Tell me, if you would, what is true wisdom? From a Christian perspective, as God's people, if I throw that out to you this morning, what is wisdom? 
anybody know? What would be your guess? Jacques? Oh, man, Jacques is biblical this morning. He's pulling out Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How many folks knew that? Okay, why didn't you tell me then, huh? You knew that. We knew that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We got it. So now, answer me this. What does that mean? We would all agree, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we say that, and we know that, and we believe that. But what does it mean then for you and I, as believers, to fear the Lord? Let me help you, because I know that most of you will not tell me, because you didn't tell me the easy one just a moment ago. The fear of the Lord is when I hold him in awe. I see the God who is. Not the God I've made him to be, not the God I've modified, but the God who is. I praise him. I'm in awe of him. I bow in humility before his majesty and his glory and his goodness. I fear the Lord. I recognize God's right over me. The truth of the matter is, to fear the Lord means that I, as an individual, have the right perspective of the God of heaven. I see him as the creator who has ownership in my life. I see him as the one who knows the beginning from the end, who can see where I can't. It means that he governs my life. His principles govern my way, that as I fear the Lord, I am in subjection to him and to his words and his will. True wisdom is not always what makes us happy. Dan spoke about that just a few minutes ago. It's not always what makes us wealthy. It's not always what works. True wisdom is God's way governing my life. Of course, it entails knowing something, right? You have to learn, you have to study, you have to read, you have to know. Listen, let me just help you with a quick sidebar. Don't ever say to me, I hate reading. Don't say it. Now, some of you hate reading, but you shouldn't. You ought to read. You ought to study. You, you ought to find good things to read. And if you do, it's amazing. When you find good books, you start to love reading. Or just start reading and read until you love reading. It's important to read. But we must read and we must gain knowledge. But it's not just the accumulation of facts. There, there are plenty of Christian people who can argue the best argument. They've studied, they memorize, they know scripture, and they can win hands down into a debate. They can throw in Greek, and they can throw in Hebrew, and they can tell you all this and that. But my question is this, to what end? To what end? It's not just accumulating facts and winning an argument. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. He said, you can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty as one spiritually. And so, it's not just knowing about God and knowing his word. How am I going to apply this word, his truth, to my life and make application? Listen to me. I don't care what you know. How does it affect you as a man? As a woman? As a father? A mother? What does it look like at your place of work? You're so full of this wisdom and knowledge and all the things you know. Are we applying it to our life to where it's changing us? Does it make a difference now as a Christian neighbor or a friend? 
This is wisdom being governed by God. And the end is for his glory, for his glory. Not planning and scheming and trying to, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and that's not what it's about. By the way, aren't you tired of the charlatans on TV throwing out Christianity? I have to be worried when a faith healer is wearing glasses. Did you, you think about that? You're going to heal me. You're wearing glasses? What's with that? It's, it's bizarre to me. Uh, it's not about that. And what we're talking about this morning is not, hey, just get wisdom and know about God and know about these things to fill your head. And if you do that, there'll never be any trouble. That's not the case. It's not about that at all. And we become so myopic in our thinking that is, if only I'm happy then I must be living in God's wisdom. That's not true. Look at Matthew chapter 7. You know this story. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, And the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And the rock is the sayings of Christ, his words. Okay? And everyone, verse 26, that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Christ says, here's wisdom, hearing my words and doing them. Here's the opposite of wisdom, hearing my words and not doing them. But I want you to know something about both of these individuals. Both of them in their house, their life, they both experienced rain. They they both experienced strong winds. They both experienced floods and trials of life. The wisdom is not so I come out through this thing unscathed. I will experience those things whether I'm wise or not. But the truth of the matter is, when I walk in God's wisdom, I get the eternal perspective knowing it's not all about this. I can follow him no matter what comes into my life. Like Paul said in Romans 8.18, he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's wisdom saying, God... No matter what, my life will be governed by who you are and what you say. And so the question this morning is simply this. Are we living in true wisdom? This morning, are you living in true wisdom? Two points. We're going to be done. Here's the first to consider. Are you and I living in true wisdom when it comes to eternity? Let me tell you something that you may not want to hear. When you're born in this world, you are born with someone feeding you and changing you. And if you live long enough, you will leave this world with someone feeding you and changing you. Pleasant thought, isn't it? You know it's true. Go to the nursing home. It's true. 
You and I are born to die. We are leaving this planet. And for some folks, they in their wisdom believe that they know how to leave this planet and come before God's presence. And so for them, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, it's foolish because in their minds, they think that if I just do the best that I can, if I'm kind to my neighbor, if I give money to the poor, if I follow the golden rule, if I go to a Baptist church, then I can leave this planet and go into God's presence. But the fact is, that's foolishness. Because there's no way into God's perfect presence unless you come perfectly. And you and I cannot come perfectly. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And the only way to come perfectly is if we come in the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so for some of you this morning, you think you're wise and you are a fool. What will it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? And for some here this morning, you will say like Jeremiah from Jeremiah 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Lost. Eternally lost, eternally under the condemnation of God. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it is by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so Paul says, you can disregard Christ and you can do it your own way, but I'm telling you something, you think that's foolish? But the only way to be saved is by the foolishness of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. He took the wrath of God on his head for you and for me. There is no other way. And if there was, why in the world the excruciating pain of Calvary? You trample underfoot the blood of Christ when you and your wisdom do it your way. Are we living in true wisdom in regard to eternity? Are we living in true wisdom this morning in regard to everyday life? I have sort of had Psalm 90, verse 12, going around in my mind for months now. It's a psalm where it says, Lord, from Vanishing point to vanishing point, you're God from everlasting to everlasting. And then it talks about how human beings are so frail. We're like a story that's told, a sigh, our life is over. And then in verse 12 it says, so teach us to number our days. And here's a problem. You and I as believers now, we don't number our days, we number our years. You, you talk to a kid and say, how old are you? And they say, I'm five and a half. Or if they're going to be 16, a couple days, they say, I'm 15 and a half. I'm getting ready to drive. But you quit saying halves when you get to be 30. <laughs> I, I'm 29 and a half. I'm hitting 30. I'm 40 and a half. I'm hitting 50. I'm 60. No one says that until you get to like 95. And it's like, I'm 95 and a half. I'm 99 and a half. I'm on my way. But the Bible says, teach us to number our days. Our days. Are we living 
our days with God over us in subjection to his law, to his principle, and to his ways. Are we doing it with our attitude? Hey, Christian, are you the guy or girl who's known for whining, complaining, gossiping, and criticizing? I mean, that's, if, if, if we went to your home or your place of work or your neighbors and said, hey, give me one word to s- describe that man, that woman from our church, they would say, whiner, gossip. They are such a downer. It's terrible to be around them. Can I tell you something? That is not living in God's wisdom. Because we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. We have a Savior who died for us. Um, We don't live under the circumstances. We're above the circumstances because we have hope that goes beyond all of this. We have a Savior in Christ. We've been given love, joy, peace, all of those things. And so are we living in wisdom every day when it comes to our attitude? Are we living in wisdom every day when it comes to love? Who, Who do you love? Let me tell you who I love, or I find it easy to love. People are just like me. Those are the people I love, right? And they're good people, the salt of the earth kind of people. My wife is shaking her head. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. But, but you know what I'm saying? People that are like me, that I like, that have things in common, I don't mind spending time with them. I don't mind being loving to them. But how do we do with people that we don't like? Anybody in this church you don't like? I'm not asking for names. But, but I'm telling you something. We're not living in the fear of the Lord when we can't love people regardless of our differences with them. It's the beauty of the church. Are we living today in light of his principles with our love? Are we doing it with our value? And what we value today, this is a really strange world we live in. We did a, it was a sort of a reunion for our class, that we, the school we graduated every, every couple, I don't know how many years it was. It's a long time. And so there's a gathering of people there, and, you know, it's one of these school reunions that I never want to go to. If I wanted to connect with you, I would have connected with you, right? I don't care. I don't even, none of those people. But there's a gal that we know from our class, and every week, she's a married woman, has a couple kids, wonderful husband, wonderful kids, and every week she changes her profile picture on Facebook. And she changes the picture. It's not with her family, not with her kids, uh, not with her husband. It's just a sort of a glamour shot of herself. And she's got to be 40-something. She's 47. And every week she puts it up there, and the, and the posts come in. You're beautiful. You're lovely. You're gorgeous. You look like you're not a day over 45. Um, you know, all these things. And then the next week she changes it again. And, you, and she's getting her value from social media, that if someone doesn't like her profile picture, her days, her life is ruined. Is that not tragic? It is tragic. So quit doing it. Quit it. My value and my worth does not come from my social media likes. My value and worth comes in the fact that I am created in the image of God and now I am a son of God or a daughter of God who's been redeemed by his blood. That's value. That's worth. And we miss that. We're not living in light of his truth. What about in our desires? What's your driving force in life, Christian? I could only win the Powerball. 
it went from nine, if you're keeping track, 900 million to one point something billion. These are our values, and, and we all get caught up in this. If I could just have this and that, and I could be, and, and we start spending the money already. We had a game in our house. Um, it's who wants to be a millionaire. You can play it on the computer. And my mom was over, and my sister was over, and uh, one of my nieces was over. We were playing at the house, and we played uh, who wants to be a millionaire. And here's the deal. Kim picked the, the, the suitcase box. It was number three. And at the end of the game, we got down with $1 million on the screen, and it was like, I don't know, 750 And we opened the box, and we won a $1 million. Not for real, but on the game. We were so happy and excited. We were spending the money already. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to buy that. And, and if we're not careful, our values become solely of this world. On January 8th of this year, they just celebrated the 60th year of five young men who went as missionaries to the Aka Indians. You probably know the name of, of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, um, McCulley, Fleming, and Uterin. Five men in the prime of their life went on a mission to reach the Aka Indians. They made contact with them, and they gave them gifts, and they met with a man and two women. And the next day, five tribesmen came up to these five young missionary men in the prime of their life with spears, and they speared to death all five of those men who were armed with rifles. Did not fire one shot. A matter of fact, one of the men, I think it was Fleming, in the Aka language said, why are you killing us? We have come as friends. And those men laid their lives down in their prime because they weren't living for this or that. They were living for the glory of Christ. And Eliot said, and you've heard it, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. You're living in wisdom because you're going to lose everything except what's done for Christ. In our relationships, do they honor the Lord? Listen, you and I this morning are not, I I would imagine, that that you and I are not as spiritual as we'd like to be, as as biblically wise as we'd like to be. Following the, uh, we have a desire to, to be more, I hope, and to do more. But let me say this we may not be as spiritual as we would like to be, but you and I this morning are as spiritual as we want to be. You know God's laws. You know its principles. You know what he says about all these things. And you and I have a decision to follow that or not. And so my challenge for us as a church this morning is simply this. Let us number our days. Let us understand what the fear of the Lord is. Let us not be making decisions that we think or we planned or we schemed or we manipulated and we got it to work. Let's say, Lord, I acknowledge you. You govern my life. And may I number my days. And may we, at the end of all of this, this year, look back and say, by God's grace and by God's glory, I acknowledge him in my life and and, and my days were full of his pleasure, of his glory, of his way. I acknowledge fear of the Lord in my life. I submit it to his governance in my life. Now, as we close this morning, it's impossible to talk about all these things Unless we talk about the power to do that, we find it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. Here's what Paul says. 
in whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so this morning, my challenge for myself and for the dear people in this church is that we'd understand that in Christ we have it all. We have it all. He is the wisdom of God, the power of God. Um, the tr- he is all of it. And by his grace, may we who know Christ allow him through his spirit to live through us. And our days would be full of saying, Lord, the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. And so as I face this day in my values and my loves and my desires and my relationships in my direction, may I submit to you and live a life that ultimately brings you glory and will ultimately be for my good. Chapter 14 is a nightmare. Everybody thought they knew what the best thing to do was. They thought they knew wisdom, and they were completely devoid of it. May not, that not be the case for God's people today. Let's pray.